Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I am really excited to share today's conversation because I think it comes at such a perfect time. It's about problem solving, but more specifically, how we can use a problem solving framework that was developed for law school students to actually build stronger connections with others while also building more influence in our lives and careers. This week's guest is actually a repeat guest. Her name is Kim Whaley. She is a lawyer, author, and law professor at the University of Baltimore. Kim's latest book is called How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. In the book and in this conversation, Kim shares a methodology that she developed for her law students that actually has applicability well beyond her classroom. She has a five-part strategy that she uses in her own life, including with her four daughters, and she shares it with us in this conversation. What I love about this conversation is that the topic has broad applicability for so many aspects of our lives and not just for problem solving. It is a focus on problem solving, but it's really about how to create a different perspective in approaching challenging situations in our lives. That can mean anything from evaluating a potential career pivot, maybe preparing for a difficult or contentious conversation. It could be a disagreement with a family member or trying to reach consensus on some issue or topic. It could also include navigating the political minefield that we increasingly have to navigate with friends and loved ones. Or in Kim's case, she even used it in navigating a difficult divorce. Kim's approach helps us learn to engage our curiosity, most importantly, and to learn to develop a problem-solving orientation that is actually a great example of how we can use a growth mindset. It's also a way of investing in others that helps us become smarter, better prepared, and much more able to navigate even the most difficult situations and problems and to steer them to a better outcome. And that, of course, can include avoiding things like pointless arguments that really are a waste of your time. 
Kim talks us through her approach, which she calls BICAT, B-I-C-A-T, which stands for break it down, identify your values, collect knowledge, analyze both sides, or maybe all sides, and tolerate. In our conversation, Kim explains why each of those steps matters and how they can help us move from an us versus them kind of mentality and into a space that's much more constructive, not to mention a space that's likely to make us all a bit happier and that can help us build and sustain influence in the process. Now, I've included a link to Kim's book in the show notes. Again, it's called How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. You'll find the show notes on my website at she said, she said podcast.com. There you will also find a full free transcript of this episode, episode 216. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Kim, I do want to give a very special shout out to a few new friends who I hope are listening this week. Last week, I served as a global ambassador for the Vital Voices Global Ambassadors Program. Now, that program brings together women from all around the world to collaborate and build economically sustainable businesses and organizations. As I reflected on that incredible experience and this conversation today with Kim, I was thinking about how much engaging with those who come from different backgrounds and life experiences can really deepen our own understanding of ourselves and also help broaden our understanding of the world. And when we approach those interactions with the type of curiosity that Kim talks about, along with a strong desire to learn, it can truly mean the difference between just meeting someone and actually forging a connection that can grow into a relationship and that can become part of our broader personal networks. A big, big thanks to the folks at Bank of America who support this Global Ambassadors Program and to the team at Vital Voices. These folks do a terrific job of creating a truly unique educational experience and one that helps increase investment and support in women-owned businesses and nonprofits all around the world. I've included links in the show notes where you can learn a bit more about the program, and I'll talk a bit more about it in a few weeks as well. But for now, here is my conversation with the incredibly thoughtful Kim Whaley. Kim, welcome back to She Said, She Said. Thanks for having me, Laura. So thrilled to be chatting with you again. Well, I'm really happy to have you. You have just released what I sort of think of as the third book in what has become a bit of a franchise for you. This book is focused on why we would all benefit from thinking a bit more like a lawyer. Now, some people may be scratching their heads saying, hmm, <laughs> aren't lawyers part of the problem? Kim, why do we need to think a bit more like a lawyer and why this book? Well, you mentioned the two other books. The first book was on the Constitution, and the goal was just to sort of enhance civic literacy by making the Constitution accessible. And then I sort of realized, well, the Constitution is all about, the end of the day, the ballot box, which seems like after teaching law for 16 years, that would be obvious to me. But it really wasn't until mm -hmm. I read, I wrote the first book. And then I said, well, we're still not quite in the right place in this, in our culture, we still have deeper problems. 
And the third book was, again, pivoting off of my many years of teaching. But the idea is, listen, lawyers actually don't think in black and white polarizing terms. We have to think about the questions, not go right to an answer and dig into your answer. And I said, well, maybe given you know how we feel sort of at, at odds with even close people in our lives around some of you know important issues, um, maybe we could people could benefit from that sort of meth sort of methodology of thinking where it's really about the questions and not about having a side, which I think surprises people because when you see lawyers on TV, you know, they're advocating something vigorously, but what it doesn't portray are the weeks, months, sometimes years of spade work and careful analysis and putting together their point of view uh, that happens behind the scenes. Obviously, much of your inspiration comes from the fact that you are a law professor at the University of Baltimore. And a big part of what you do in the classroom is teaching these would-be lawyers who are going through law school how to become lawyers. So maybe talk about the journey that you start with with your students and how that inspired this book. So students, I think, increasingly over the years come to, to law school wanting to know what the answer is. And they'll end class wanting to know, okay, what do we need to know? Or Professor Whaley, what do you want on the exam? And it really, Laura, takes weeks, almost to the end of the first semester, to sort of dislodge that way of thinking and to get them to start thinking about, as I said, questions and a methodology mm -hmm. for breaking down a complex problem. Someone comes to you uh, with a legal issue. If you could Google it, and get the answer on Google, nobody would hire you. So I try to explain, listen, people aren't going to pay you hundreds of dollars an hour if they can solve these thorny problems for themselves. So the first step, and I've had students, um, when I talk about the book, I invited once a former student to a panel and she said, listen, that was the critical thing that I learned and I, I apply to practice every day is that problems actually are a lot of sub problems. Mm -hmm. It's not one big problem. It's It's many smaller problems and you have to kind of delve into each of them and then go back to the first issue. So I spend all semester with my students teaching them what I call a framework for decision making and and encourage them to basically make a decision tree and then you go back to the big issue. Uh, and you know we can talk about what I do in the book, many aspects of life, but you know most problems in people's lives if they're difficult, uh, they're they're complex, there are lots of pieces to it. It's not yeah. uh, you know yes or no and we we can get flooded and overwhelmed. How do I even begin? to solve this. And that's what the book tries to do, like I do with my students, break it down into step-by-step -step methodology. And then we just feel, I think, a little more ownership and a little more uh, agency over some of these hard problems. Yeah, absolutely. And it presumably takes or helps you take some of the emotion out of the interaction when things can feel so hot and heated potentially, right? Depending on what we're talking about. But for the most part, if it's a problem you're trying to solve, you know, it 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 sur surges the chemicals in your brain are such that you, you know, panic sometimes, right? And it makes it more difficult to make a decision. Yes. And I talk about that in the book. I did a little bit of sort of social science research on decision making. And, you know, we do have different ways of making decisions. And in, in an urgent situation, a fight or flight type situation, our, our brains are flooded with hormones and mm -hmm. they are the 
they're they're important, right? They're important to get us out of a, a thorny situation, or maybe in the moment you have this sort of opportunity that you have to seize. Um, you know, people that are in sales understand that. That's why people say, you know, make the deal, don't let the customer walk away. Right. Because in that moment, you're excited. I want this. Or uh, I talk about in the book, a time I was driving to work. It's an hour where I live to Baltimore. And, um, you know, it was in a three lane highway. And, and you know, within a second, the car in front of me in the middle lane stopped in the middle of this highway that was going 65 miles an hour. Oh, and in a matter of, a, you know, just milliseconds, I did this whole analysis in my head. I could veer left or I could merge right. Um, I don't have time to look over my shoulder, but if I merge what right, that's my more comfort zone, my greater comfort zone. So I did it and I did okay. And I just started, I burst into tears because I was so flooded. So, but you know, I got lucky, but that was my brain in the moment of danger, make a good decision, but it's not always the time to make comp more complicated decisions. You know, I went through a difficult divorce. I talk about it in the book, right. many aspects of that. And you can get so overloaded with emotions and, and science says, it really takes 20 to 30 minutes actually before your body, when you're in that fight or flight for your body to sort of get back to equilibrium and the hormones to leave. So I even recommend in the book, listen, if you're in a heated debate with somebody, give it 20 to 30 minutes till you're back. Both of you don't have those drugs that are there because you're, you feel like I'm, you know, there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex chasing me. Right. right. So I need to, I need to hide. Um, that's not, that's all. That's not the best, I think, methodology for making longer-term complex decisions, particularly those that involve, I think, children and family. Yeah, absolutely. You talk about divorce. You talk about healthcare decisions. You talk about getting married. You talk about changing jobs. You talk about all of these, all of these big life things. Um, obviously, those are some great examples, but there are probably many other examples that my listener's thinking about as she's listening to this conversation. It, you know, it, it also is a framework for having difficult conversations as well. Right. I think, and that's something um, that we are struggling with, with as a culture. I, I get that question a lot. You know, how do I talk to Aunt Millie over the Thanksgiving table? Uh, and we are in a bit of a crisis, even with our youth, right? Where high suicide rates, depression, anxiety, and some experts have tied that to a lack of what they call relatedness. But what that really means is our youth are are not not connecting. I mean, part of it, of course, is the pandemic, but it might be a little bit deeper. That you know, they're seeing their parents, their teachers, their political leaders so polarized, so into black and white thinking. Um, and so, sure, sure, the idea is okay. Here's a step by step process. You can get out of that fight or flight and just take it step by step. I have like sort of worksheets in the book where you can right. you can manage each step, and if you just slow everything down. And you just get curious about where the outcome might be rather than, you know, this is my point of view and I'm going to defend it. That's a very different mindset than, you know what, I have my truth and my point of view, but I'm just going to get curious as to where this process leads. You're not as dug into being, to being right or or feeling like you have to preserve your truth, right? It's more like, okay, I have my point of view, but let's just go through these five steps and see. You might end up at the same place, but you might, 
you might pivot on a few things or you just might be able find yourself a little closer to somebody that you didn't think was possible because you have areas of common ground. Um, you know, it's really important, Laura, I think, Laura, for people to understand, like you can you can hang on to your truth um, even if people disagree with you. I think sometimes we think, and I, I've had, we've all had these escalating debates with our friends or, you know, uh, spouses or whatever, where it's, no, I'm right. No, you're, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm, that's like the, I, I imagine in my mind, like a tug of war with a rope. You know, what the book tries to do is to get us to drop the rope that, you know, I, I don't need you to agree with me for me to have my truth. But what is important to me is to try to understand you a little better. Um, that That's a, just a really different place. And, you know, nobody likes to feel alienated and isolated uh, and nobody likes to feel shamed. And when you're told you're wrong and I'm right, it, it just, it drums up a lot of that reactive emotional stuff. And then people just run into their corners and it's really not good for, it's not good for, for people in their everyday lives and, and the culture writ large either, frankly. Right, right. Absolutely. It also prevents you from being able to learn, right? When you stop asking those questions and you stop engaging your curiosity, you're much less likely to be really encouraging that process of learning, right? Asking those questions, just as you talk about in the book. Yeah, I think about a toddler, you know, I have four children, mm, um, daughters, four girls, right? yeah, four yeah. girls. <laughs> but I think about a toddler learning how to walk, and they just, they just fall, and they get back up, and they fall, and they get back up, and they fall, and eventually, it's just amazing. They don't say, forget it. I, I tried that three times. I'm out. Like, I'm just not going <laughs> to walk, right? Um, and how often do we do that as adults? Do we let ourselves fall, fall, make mistakes, maybe mm -hmm. stumble? Maybe, you know, we have to kind of do something a little bit differently. Kids are much better at it. But I should give a little anecdote what sort of uh, as you know, we talked before, I, I do a lot of sort of com legal commentary, you know, in various media outlets. And uh, in the early part of the pandemic, and it was actually during the first of the last two impeachments, I was on CBS and um, doing a lot of an analysis of this. And I was teaching a class at American University, Washington College of Law called Democracy at Risk. It was asked, I was asked to teach the class. It wasn't my syllabus. And I said, you know, gosh, this is just by definition going to get into difficult issues. So, sure. <laughs> so, right, right. And I had about 30 students. So, I did something new, Laura. I said to them, before you come, we're going to read the Supreme Court cases. We're going to do all that. Um, we'll read the Constitution. We're, we're going to do all that. But before you come to class, uh, I want everyone to read two opinion pieces with different points of view on each of these issues. Love that. And the one thing we did is talk about how to find good information. I have that. I have some tips in the books because there is bad information out there, which is different from when I was in high school or college where you right. had to go to the library and it was vetted, et cetera. But, and then, but I said, you know, we talked about how to get good information, but, but I'm like, read, you know, you have to read two op-eds and make a little comment before you come into class. And then at the end of the semester, I did a round table and the students, it was really stunning to me. They said two things. They said, one, this is the first place in our entire education where we have felt safe to talk about these hard issues, where we have felt that we're not going to get shamed or labeled or ostracized. That, and that was number one. And also, you know, I would manage the conversation. So we just didn't get into sort of personal attacks or ad hominem reactivity and just kind of, okay, let's get to a common ground. And the, the second thing they said is just what you're indicating. They said, we came to class kind of curious 
we're like, whoa, maybe I'm not quite right about this. And open-minded about hearing about, curious to hear other points of view, to challenge their assumptions. And that really stuck with me. It was a very moving final class where um, it really shifted, it shifted these students in ways that were beyond just learning about the law. And and that, that really stuck with me. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting and really important perspective, not just for students, but also for faculty members, because sometimes the shaming, you know, when you when you talk about shaming and they're they're afraid of how they'll be judged, it's not necessarily, I mean, it is in part by their peers, but it also can be as it relates to a faculty member or a teacher. And, you know, I have this happen <laughs> in my own life. My children are much younger, but, you know, those situations happen where kids as they get older are like, I'm afraid to express a point of view. I'm afraid that it will affect my grades potentially. Maybe what's the advice for encouraging more open-mindedness across the board as it relates to both students as well as the as the folks like you who are encouraging these students and teaching them? Well, I think faculty need to um, have the courage in the classroom to have these conversations and they need some sort of methodology on how to do it, right? Mm-hmm. To to understand that the polarization itself is hurting our kids. And that imagine, Laura, it's like, you know, imagine someone you've known your whole life and m- maybe listeners have had this experience and you really respect this person. You know, they act with integrity. Um, they try to do the right thing and maybe they just disagree on something. Imagine if we approach these debates, like what's the, what is the most reasonable sort of best argument that someone I really respect might make about this point of view that I, I just disagree with rather than going to, you disagree with me, you must be a bad person, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like we, we know, we already know, we have the tools, Laura, um, in our, in our lives to, to rely on a, our own value system to make good decisions when it's not sort of you know maybe politically a hot button but but we know who we want to be have be our friends we know who should be uh, who we like to have lead our children or maybe babysitters or doctors or you know we have our own sorting mechanism um, and I think most of us go towards the light that is we look for the best in people and we get inspired and we get connection and we love that connection you meet somebody you know in the grocery line and you hit it off it's such a good feeling mm-hmm. um and maybe you know in my mind it's okay if we if that becomes the the guiding principle and the, dis- the, the dispute the areas of disagreement is kind of you know not the leading force not how we define each other um that's just a different approach and i'll just say it it, it applies to across the political spectrum. It's on the far left as well as on the far right. I mean, Mm -hmm. everyone is doing that right now. I think social media has made it worse. um, And we can talk about that. It's, but, but if, but if we can prioritize our core humanity and not whose team we're on, uh, it's just a different way. It's a, it's a lighthouse in the darkness, I think, in a way that being on a team that can feel good too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it only goes so far and we're seeing the effects of that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very well said. Let's get into your methodology in the book. I love this framework because, as you talk about in the title of the book, you use one of my favorite terms, common sense, right? <laughs> very practical, very common sense guide here. Talk about the framework. You, it's, it goes by the acronym of BICAT. Let's, let's break that down a bit. Right. So BICAT is my framework for legal analysis that I don't, it's a little bit different what I do in the classroom. It's a little more sort of nuanced, but step one is break an issue down. So imagine, you know, I'll talk about my own divorce, right? You've got financial issues. That's one sub issue. You have your children, you have your children's mental health, you have their everyday activities. You have, you have, what do you do about the dog? Um, you have your own personal well-being and your future. I mean, you can imagine all of these different pieces. That's it's it's not just, you know, who's right or who's wrong in the divorce. Lots of sub-issues. That's B, break it down. Mm -hmm. I is to identify your values and your aims. And this is so critical. And I recommend that people literally write down what their values are. So when it comes to a divorce, it might be, you know, moving on as quickly as possible. For me, that was one of them. That was, and my value aim, you know, it, that means you might have to give some stuff up. You can't go to, you're not going to go to trial and maybe get a judge to say you win a hundred percent. But you can imagine, you know, lots of decisions around healthcare, around, do you take the job, you know, identifying for yourself what matters in a job. You know, I really want a positive working environment. I really want to just maximize my income. What, you know, so write those things down deliberately and then circle the one that's the most important to you because we're going to get back to that. So B, break it down. I identify your values and aims and they might be different based on the sub issues. Mm -hmm. C is to collect lots of knowledge. And I just, I use the word knowledge deliberately. Um, and that is like lawyers do on both sides, right? I mean, as the good stuff and the bad stuff. I mean, you don't want to go under the knife, for example, and have a surgery when you're only looking at the upsides. Everybody wants to know what's the recovery period? What are the po possible complications? What are, you know, the interactions if you have to take certain drugs? Like you want to know the bad side. So that's C, collect. Um, a is to analyze both sides of the issue. It's this is so core to lawyering. Lawyers have to understand their opponent's arguments as well as their own, or they will lose. How often do we do that? How often do we sit down and say, all right, I really want to understand why the other people in the other camp, so to speak, believe this way. Let, let's really think that again. Assume they're good people. Mm -hmm. um, and then T is tolerate the fact that you're not always going to be right and everyone's not going to agree with you. And that gets back to your values. If you are, if you say to yourself, listen, I, I, I stuck to my values Maybe people don't agree with me. Maybe, maybe you know, I lost a friend or two, um, which actually happened to me in my divorce. Uh, just hard stuff that happens. But I can feel good about the fact that I won because I stuck with my value system. Mm -hmm. and, and that comes from being very, as I said, very deliberate, very specific about what matters to you. You can win even if you don't get the house and the dog and, you know, alimony until you're, the day you die as a woman, for example. I'm just going to say, like, you know, you might say, I deserve that. I raised the kids. I did all this. Okay. But, but if you, if, if the other pieces are in place and in, in that you, your value system is still intact at the end, the fact that maybe you didn't win 100% is something you can live with a little better. 
Yeah. Let's maybe talk about this in the con some of the other contexts like changing a job. I I get a lot of people listening, a lot of women listening to this podcast who are maybe taking a break from the workforce or they're getting back into the workforce after taking a break or they're pivoting in their career or thinking about pivoting, right? They've reached that point where, okay, this, what I'm doing is not doing it for me anymore. I don't know how to figure out what's next, sort of thinking through that. Maybe apply this methodology to those kinds of decisions? So great question. Break it down, right? So imagine, you know, I have a, I have four siblings and one of my sisters um, made a major job change recently. She was at a big company for a long time and now she wants to be, she's going into being, coming an artist, oh, right? Amazing. A big shift, right? Yeah. But you can that. break down, okay, for the financial piece, um, the job satisfaction piece, the life goal piece, all, you know, the sub issues under B, identify your values and your aims. This is, I think, in your question, probably the most important part. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, it really is financial. Um, others, it's, you know, it, it, maybe there's a little more flexibility and you want to develop your creative self or you're just tired of whatever you'd been doing. Um, you, 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 you writing that stuff down and then thinking about it, maybe moving off at a day for a day, circling the thing that's the most important that then can become your guiding principle as you walk through your job search. You've been very specific about all the sub issues and circled the thing that really is what matters to you. I have a, a child that had to dis made decision on um, colleges or she's making it now actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did this, we did this in the car on a car on a college wow. search. Uh -huh. And she said, you know, mom, I just, I just don't want to be bored anymore. After all these years of COVID, she goes, I just want to be in some place that's really fun and exciting. And that became the most important value for her over, does it have the major over, you know, is it meaning, is it, is it like the top in the country on the mm -hmm. major or is it a big school or a small school or some of those other criteria that we tend to apply in a job on a college search for her, it was mom, I just want, I want to spread my wings and just really not be bored and be excited and interested in really made a big difference, Laura, and how we sorted through colleges, completely different criteria than I think uh, a lot of kids feel they need to apply yeah. in, in a college search. Yeah. If, if the person um, listening, I, I think you mentioned this in the book, you talk about um, be careful of a tendency to glom on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe yeah. if someone listening has a tendency to want to glom on, maybe talk about what you mean by that. I think we, I think we would probably know, but 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 how how do you how do you if you if you do have that tendency, how do you how do you how do you apply your methodology to uh, to deal with that approach? And also, is there a beyond just writing these things down like as you go through the methodology do you have any other tips for how to maybe organize these pieces beyond just circling the one that's the most important okay so number one is and in the book in each chapter i unveil the, a step and i do it using a law school case so we actually in the book do what i do in the law school classroom and so i'll give an example of a, of a written decision by by a court and how does this court break down a 
complex issue into a smaller issue. So, so we do do that. So the anti, the, I call it actually the anti-glomming, no glomming. Yes. And my students <laughs> understand this. Um, it, it's to not sweep up all the sub issues into the big issue. You know, take an example. Um, if you, you know, and I know that, you know, it's hard. Some, some, some of these issues are, are, I'll admit are kind of hard for people. One might be during the, the pandemic, what do I do about my child, right? Mm -hmm. Going to school. Um, maybe you're not comfortable sending them to school because of the the virus, but you know they're not thriving at home on Zoom, right? right. So so the, the anti-glomming is keep the things through the step-by-step -step process separate because um, they might, they're competing. They might, you might have to give something up. That is, you might have to give up some stuff to make sure your kid's in the classroom, the other stuff that matters to you. So that's really... That's step one. So for example, maybe you you just really aren't comfortable vaccinating your child, but it's, re you're, it's required to send them to school. You're going to have to give something up. You're either going to have to have your child at home on Zoom, or you're going to have to get them vaccinated to get them to school. You've got to give something up. So the anti-glomming is to just be very specific about all the sub-issues. Don't um, you know blend them together early because then you lose the important nuances. Then two is, this is where the identifying your values are aim. Maybe your value is education, for example, or maybe your value really is, listen, I, you know, it's healthcare and that's, I just don't feel comfortable around a vaccine. So that can help you make the decision ultimately when you are identify your value as to which piece of it you give up. Mm -hmm. C, collect lots of information. Um, you know, uh, I talk about in the book how to do that. I think you know, when I was a kid, it was how to gather information was a skill. We learned how to use a card catalog. We learned how to use microfiche. Like right? we were little detectives. Right. I think we need now to teach affirmatively how to find good information because it's fed into our phones and algorithms. What I'm getting is different, Laura, from what you're getting, which is different from what every listener is getting. Um, so being very thoughtful and deliberate about making sure you have quality information under step three. And again, I would also write all that down. A, um, analyze both sides of the each of the sub-issues. Here's the pros, here's the cons. We all know pro and con, con lists. Um, and then T is when you do go back to, okay, you've got it all out on the table. You have your sub-issues, you have your pros and your cons. You go back to your values and your aims and you're like, okay, this is really, when I have it all on the table, this is where my comfort level is. This is what matters to me the most. And again, you might get people mad at you, but when you're at, at the table with Aunt Millie, for example, and having debate, you can say, listen, I, I broke this down. I put it all back. I don't need you to agree with me, Aunt Millie, but I, I hear you, mm -hmm. right? I hear you. Um, versus you're starting, okay, we're in this team or that team on these issues, or you might be with a spouse. The spouse wants to move to California and take a new job. That's a very complicated thing. You could see how it very quickly escalate. What do you mean? I'm going to leave all my friends and leave my job. You're, that's, the, that's glomming, right? So many pieces and it's either you move or you don't move. Um, the anti-glomming uh, principle is to, okay, slow it all down break it down into piece by piece by piece by piece by piece and and handle these pieces in a met, you know very methodical way and then by the time you get to T 
Your spouse might have to tolerate giving something up. You might have to tolerate giving something up. But if you have a sense of what your joint value system is, maybe you both can live with that and not be so mad at each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. I absolutely love that. And in fact, it might make sense to actually use your methodology together to actually mm -hmm. go through the acronym as a couple, if that's is, you know, as the case may be. Absolutely. Maybe Maybe talk about um, using this approach to hiring a lawyer. Maybe you're not a lawyer, but and you need a lawyer. How do you go through this process and why as it relates to hiring a lawyer? So, you know, this is surprising to many people, but there are different styles of lawyers for a particular issue you might have. So, sure. so you know, um, I mean, things as routine like closing on a house or drafting a will, especially if you don't have a tremendous amount of assets, those are pretty straightforward. But if you're in, um, say you are sued, civilly you're sued as you have a small business and mm -hmm. uh, someone has a slip and fall in your, um, in the, your foyer and they sue you for negligence, some lawyers are going to be, you know, hard hitting, just um, make it as painful as possible for the other side at every step of the way, regardless of the, of the facts, other lawyers are going to prioritize just moving through things quickly. Right. So if you kind of go through the bycat before you start talking to lawyers, maybe, you know, this is the fifth time the same person has sued you and, you know, you've budgeted for legal fees and you just really need you just need to to send a message that you're not going to be bullied. Maybe maybe that's what, or you might say, listen, I have a business to run. Let's make this go away. I know that I didn't do anything wrong here. I had a giant sign up, da da da. We had, we, but I just need this to go away. Those are two different lawyers. Mm -hmm. And if you've gone through that five step process, even on the back of a napkin on your way to the meeting, you can suss out what that lawyer style is because if it doesn't fit with your value system, you're going to end up at odds with your own lawyer and it's going to end up being very, very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's, that's great advice. Um, maybe for the question, Kim, because, you know, this, we're airing this in either May or June, it'll probably be June. Um, so we've got a lot of new graduates who are thinking about what's next. When someone comes to you and says, I am weighing the options between getting an MBA and going to law school, maybe <laughs> recognizing you're going to tell them to use your method, but maybe yeah. additional perspective around that question, how, how you decide whether law school is right for you. Well, you know, again, I have four daughters and so I'm right in the thick of this. Um, Any lawyers in the bunch? No. Any no, no, I don't know. It's hard to know. I mean, I still have two at home, but um, I, you know, I, I guess my 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 advice would be to take a deep breath and slow things down. Uh, that um, life, like my methodology, is a process. It's not a. It's not a necessarily a goal or an end game or an end result. And I think um, having talked to large groups of of not just law students but also undergrads, there is this sense that I need to make all the right decisions now. I need to know where I'm going. Uh, if I take the wrong class, I'm in trouble. If I take the wrong, if I go to the wrong school, if I don't major in the right thing, if I don't get the right summer job, it, it's all not going to work out. But no, that's not true. Um, that actually the experimentation, having curiosity, um, you know, sort of following your heart, believe it or not, Laura, I just learned this recently, our hearts have neurons in it, in them. 
You know, we're mm -hmm. so cognitive, right? right? We use the neurons in our brain, but our intuition is really important. So it's to kind of, my advice would be to slow things down. Of course, go through the bycat, but give yourself a break. It There's plenty of time um, to do the law school, to do the, the sort of very, um, you know, uh, those paths that are well-worn, um, mm -hmm. there's plenty of time for that. It's, it's okay to just be curious and, and find things that make your heart sing in the early parts of, of your life right out of college. And, and you'll be fine. I think that's the message. You'll, yeah. you'll be just fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So much of what you, uh, what you touch on in your methodology and in your approach, I think, is really reinforced by this topic of influence, which is a theme that runs through this podcast. It's really, this is, these conversations are about building and sustaining influence in your life to get what you want. And influence can mean different things to different people. But the reality is to really be influential, to be an influential person, you got to be somebody that people want to work with, who makes clear decisions, who's really thoughtful about things, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe talk about, Kim, what this concept of influence means to you. Well, again, I just have to go back to my students where for the first time, I don't know what happened this semester, but my the drop ad opened on a Friday, and I'm teaching um, two. I was lined up. I'm actually going to be at another law school in the fall, but I was lined up at, to teach two elective classes uh, that almost never fill up because they're very complicated, difficult classes. Within a minute, they had both gone to almost triple the enrollment that I've ever had in these classes. And I That's asked amazing. students afterwards and they said, you know what, Professor Whaley, you have this way of being rigorous, but also so clear. And so, so, so there's an element of you, we know where we stand with you and we know you're, we're going to, you're going to take us, you're going to drive us the bus to the, to where we need to go. And so for me, that what, what came across with that is like living again, living in your truth with compassion, um, that I think, at least in my life, um, with these young people have, has, I think had an impact that is, you know, they don't have to agree with me. I have students from all across the political spectrum in my classes, but if that's the overwhelming approach or the reaction to, okay, here's somebody who can help us help us think about how to live in our lives with truth, with integrity, with a methodology, with some, some sense that we'll be okay. That to me is, that to me is, is influence. Not so much, you know, I'm right. I have all the answers. You should listen to me because I know what you should think. People don't want that, right? right. People, people don't like to be told what to think. Right. On the other hand, it is very comforting to be in a, in a team uh, I mean, our kids know this, you know, we call them clicks in seventh grade. That is human nature too. Um, but what I'm trying to do with this book, Laura, is to is to have, shift, give another way of be feeling empowered in the world. Mm -hmm. This is if this is a way you can empower yourself without necessarily being on a team. You can still be on a team, but here's another way you can have agency in your life and you can affect people because even if they disagree with you, they'll respect how you go about approaching these issues and you do it with, with curiosity and, and compassion for, for other points of view. I love that answer. That's really, really beautiful. 
So Kim, you've got three books now, you've got something of a franchise. What's next? What's the next topic or topics that you think you might tackle? Well, I am doing a book for a um, a smaller press. It's a coffee table book on the power to, the pardon power. And we the, go the pardon the, power. So pardon the, power. <laughs> the president's ability to pardon crimes, and it's it's really fun. It goes all the way back to Roman times in England, and why do we have it? And so that's kind of the the legal the legal angle. Okay. But you know the other trajectory. I, I taking I'm taking my own advice that you just asked me. You give graduates. I'm just following my heart. And I really appreciate this kind of conversation uh, because I'm, you know, becoming less and less interested in talking about law and more and more interested in talking about how can we, how can we be our own best mothers, right? For yeah. ourselves, for our children, for the people we care about, for our colleagues. And I just believe we all have a common thread of humanity that winds through all of us. It's there. Right. right. And that's, if that's what I'm, I'm just excited about encouraging people to look for in each other. And uh, maybe it's a little naive. Um, but to me, that's the, that is the way out of, out of the darkness, not so much through, through having X or Y opinion on things in this, yeah. in this moment. Yeah. Very, very well said. Kim, I loved this conversation and I loved having a chance to see you and talk to you again. Well, I loved it too, Laura. Thank you again for having me. Hey friend, thanks so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode and of Kim's perspective on problem solving. And if you try her bycat method, I'd love to hear about that too. Remember, you'll find links to Kim's latest terrific book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, as well as her other books in the show notes for this episode. You can also download a full free transcript of this episode, episode 216 there as well. And the best place to find the show notes is on my website at shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. Also, if you're looking for more content like this, please be sure to follow me on social media. You'll find me on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Laura Cox Kaplan. And you can also direct message me on those platforms as well. Most of all, friend, I hope you found the time you spent with me a good investment in you. Until next week, you take care and I'll talk to you soon. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.